About 10 years ago, social scientists started researching happiness. They asked questions about what is it that leads to feelings of well-being and quality of life. Now, I have to confess, I have reservations about the concept of happiness in general. It seems to play into a cultural obsession with having happy feelings, and feelings by definition are elusive, so I'm not sure I want to base my entire life on what I'm feeling at any one point in time. Plus, there are any number of values that I think are vastly more important than the pursuit of happiness. For example, Jesus once said that if we love the poor, we're compassionate toward the grieving. If we speak up for those who are being persecuted, and if we're humble people, we will be blessed. And by that, he meant happy. In other words, when we do the things that Jesus asks of us, happiness gets thrown in. It's not something we should ever try to pursue directly. Now, I've had parents tell me, I don't really care what my kids do as long as they're happy. And I think, really? Really? You, that's all you care about? Because I care about a whole lot more. A whole host of other things more than the happiness of my kids. For one, are they good people? Secondly, do they care about others? A lot of really happy people are self-absorbed narcissists who don't care about anybody other than themselves. And that's not the kind of child I want to raise. I don't care if they're happy. But raising children is the topic for next week. So why then do I even bring the subject up? Well, despite my reservations about the fixation that our culture has with happiness, some of the research I've read, I actually agree with. First, researchers tell us what doesn't lead to happiness, and the number one on the list is money. Once you have enough to pay the bills, a pay raise doesn't make you happier. That is, unless you start to give it away. People who, make, who give away money appear to sustain greater levels of happiness over time than those who don't. Another dead end, success. Momentarily maybe, but enduring happiness doesn't come from success. It also doesn't come from fame, power, beauty. All those things are transitory. In, you know, what? Comparison. They just lead to comparison, and that's a trap. This summer, though, I read a summary of some of the conclusions of well over 1,000 happiness studies over the last 10 years, and I was shocked when I agreed with most of the conclusions. Here were the four things that this summary had in it. The first on the list was, do you have a way of making sense of the world, especially when bad things happen? For Christians, that would be a theological framework that helps us make sense of death, suffering, and evil in the world. By the way, Christians are often criticized for the answers that we give to some of these questions, but let me, and I, I think they're more satisfying than people imagine, but... I think what we've got is a lot more satisfying than, say, philosophical naturalism, which just says that life is nasty, brutish, and short, and you better get used to it. Another point that these researchers have found is that what leads to happiness is having meaningful work. Do you believe that what you're doing with your life serves an important cause, that somebody needs you, that your work matters, and serves the good of others? Third on the list is, do you have family? That is, do you live with people who care about you? And then finally on the list is, do you have friends? Just two or three people who hurt when you hurt, who are happy when you're happy, just because they love you. And vice versa, we can live that way in other people's lives. These last two, family and friends, tell us something about what the Bible also tells us about, and that is that relationships matter. They're the key to long-term happiness. So our topic this week, if you haven't figured it out already, is friendship. This morning, as Amy already mentioned, we begin a new sermon series called How to Be a Good, and then you can fill in the blank. And it's a series that recognizes that at any one point in time, all of us fulfill multiple roles in our lives. 
And we wonder how we're doing. Am I being a good friend, a godly parent, the kind of spouse, employee, church member, or neighbor that God wants me to be? And balancing these various roles can be challenging. It's tough to meet the expectations that others have of us and even that we have of ourselves. So it's tempting to think that this is just a modern struggle, but really, this kind of challenge has been around for a long, long time. That's why what we're going to do in the next seven weeks is look to some ancient but remarkably relevant advice that we find in the Bible to see what God expects of us in each one of these roles. Now, from the beginning, let me just say that I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, here comes the guilt. You're looking ahead, and if you can find the topics, you're probably going to start figuring out which weeks you don't want to show up. For example, the week when we talk about marriage or parenting or especially how to be a good church member. You just can begin to imagine the unrealistic expectations that Amy and I are going to burden you with. So let me just say up front, yes, we're going to say a few challenging things, but I believe that if you listen and if you engage with us, that you'll find that the benefits outweigh the effort. Jesus himself told us that when we feel overwhelmed, we're to come to him. And he said, when we do, I will give you rest. And then he added, what he asks is not burdensome, but attainable. That's in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. So back to friendship and these happiness studies. The good news is that we now know what makes us happy, and it's relationships, including good friends. The bad news is that friendship in America seems to be in trouble. There's one longitudinal study that's asked the same questions for many years, and in 1990, the average person said they had 3.4 friends. Today, that number is 1.8. So in just over 25 years, the number of friends that we have has been cut in half. Now, I don't know how the researchers define friendship. That number seems a little bit low, probably an extremely restrictive definition. But directionally, I think it's right. There seems to be an ache in our hearts for friendships that's not being filled, which means that many feel alone. Social scientists have started to dig into this to try to find factors and why this is true. And one key factor they've learned about friendship is that we have been negatively affected by the mobility in our modern society. The average person moves 5.8 times. And I'm not just talking about moving from Minneapolis to St. Paul or back, and, or back again. This is moving from one region of the country to another. And in general, when you move, you end up with fewer friends and shallower friendships. It also doesn't help that two of our modern core values are self-actualization and the freedom to choose. Now, we just assume these values. They're part of the cultural air that we breathe. But what we don't know is that these always haven't been the core values that cultures have had. The ancient world had a very different set of values. They were more oriented toward community. The individual was less important. Now, each of these two systems, whether it's individualism or communitarianism, have their strengths and weaknesses. Interestingly, the Bible, the authors of the Bible, really balance these two in some remarkable ways. But right now, at this cultural moment, we're tilted more toward individualism than we are toward community. A community-oriented culture has strong relational connections, but sometimes ignores the legitimate individual rights of, indi of an individual. Individualism, on the other hand, tends to protect the individual rights, but it can lead to some fairly selfish behavior. So we may think that minimal obligation and maximum freedom lead to happiness, but it doesn't. It's a myth. Instead, what we end up doing is changing friends, spouses, and even churches whenever our feelings just kind of change, and then we find that we're lonelier than ever. 
So what then does the Bible have to say about friendship? Those of you who know the, who've read the Bible know that it's full of examples of friendship, one of which we talked about earlier this summer when we talked about David and Jonathan and the special friendship that they had. But there's Naomi and Ruth and Elijah and Elisha, and then there are the friendships that Jesus himself had. You know of the 12 disciples, but what you may not know is that three of those were closer than the others. Peter, James, and John were Jesus' closest friends. And then there's a special friendship that Jesus had with one particular family, sisters Mary and Martha and brother Lazarus. Much of what we learn about friendship in the Bible is through example, not specific advice, although the book of Proverbs does give us some really great ideas. So both from the Bible and from the writings of some of the earliest Christians, we know that friendship was highly valued in the ancient world. Now let me just deal, though, first with a misconception that I think we need to take care of, and that is that many think that the only friendship they really need is for a spouse. Let me just say marriage is important. Um, For many of us, it's probably the most important relationship that we have. That's why in a couple of weeks, Amy's going to talk about that. But marriage will not meet all your relational needs. In fact, the very idea puts an unreasonable burden on a marriage. Even those of us in healthy marriages need good friends. Plus, not everybody's going to get married. For a variety of reasons, either through choice or circumstances, many will find themselves single for significant times in their lives. Those who don't marry, for whatever reason, shouldn't be doomed to lifelong loneliness. And the early church understood this in part because the world in which they lived had some different dynamics than our present today. The average lifespan was much shorter than it is, and I know that you know that, except that here's the deal. It doesn't mean that just because the average person lived to be 45 or 50 means that everyone lived to be 45 because some people died at 20 and some people died at 90. It wasn't uncommon for someone to lose a spouse and then spend maybe decades as a single person. When Jesus was just eight days old, his family went to the temple, and they met a woman named Anna, who's an example of that kind of dynamic. Anna, we're told, had been married for seven years and then lost her husband. When she met Jesus, she was 84 years old. That means that she had decades of living as a single person, as a widow. So all of us need friends, or we would be a society of very lonely people. The early church had a way of thinking about how they lived together, and they used the metaphor of a family. In fact, they'd often call each other brother and sister. Now, we don't do that today. There have been times in history, and there are different Christian traditions where they do use the terms brother and sister. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that we resurrect the term, but I'd like us to revisit the concept. In in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul tells the Christians in Rome this. He says, be devoted to one another in love. And the word that he used for love here is the love between siblings, between brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters love each other, and they know something that's a dynamic of family relationships. And that is that they are in relationship with one another, less by choice and more by circumstances. We don't choose our siblings, and yet we love them. The early Christians believed that God had placed them in their little churches with one another, and they were to live like they did with their siblings, like they do with family. Both in the New Testament and the history books, they tell us that the early churches were remarkably diverse little communities, rich and poor, aristocrats and slaves, Greeks and Jews, men and women. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that they shared generously with one another, that their shared life was so attractive that many people wanted to be a part of these churches, and so they became Christians. In less than three centuries, just a few hundred Christians became millions upon millions in the ancient Roman world. 
So it's not a stretch that it was more than just theology that made this church grow. It was deep friendships. Now, what I want to do now is shift gears and talk about some characteristics of great friends and then talk about how it is that we can build great friendships. So let's look first at what a good friendship looks like. And the first characteristic I want to talk about is loyalty. In Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Now, what's true is that we all want to be known. We want to be accepted just as we are. We want people who will be for us when we're down and who celebrate when we're up. And we need to do the same for other people. But there's something that has crept in, a concept that's crept in from legal theory that I think works against this kind of loyalty, and that is the idea of a contract. You know that a contract is a conditional arrangement. When I do something for you, you're obligated to do something for me. But the highest form of friendship is very different than a contract. And we looked at this idea earlier this summer when we talked about David and Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, the narrator tells us that they made a covenant, not a contract, but a covenant with one another. That meant that they were committed to serve the other person, to be there for one another, regardless of what happened, whether one person fulfilled an end of a bargain, whether it was an asymmetrical relationship or a completely symmetrical one. Now, that may seem extreme in part because so many of our friendships today are transactional. As long as someone is useful to us, we're there. But as soon as we're not getting what we want, we're out of there. And it's not the kind of friendships that the biblical writers were talking about. So here's a question someone once asked me. Who would you call at 2 a.m.? When you've been in an accident or someone in your family is seriously ill or you're in trouble because you've screwed up, you've made a terrible mistake, you know in those times you can't just call anyone. So who would you call? Well, it'd have to be somebody you know would pick up the phone, somebody who would show up, someone who would love you no matter what you've done, even if you're going to have some very hard conversations later. And it can be hard to find friends like this. It can be hard to be a friend like that. But I've experienced it. I bet many of you have experienced it. And I've heard stories of others experiencing it as well. One time a man told me about a time in his life when he went through a difficult financial crisis and an ugly divorce. And he told me how his friends stuck by him. At one point he said, I told them, I'm not much fun to be around right now. But I'm so grateful that you are here with me. I couldn't do this without you. Loyalty means that we look first for what we can give, not what we can get out of a friendship. Over time, that we know that there are going to be seasons when we give and seasons when we take. It'll all even out in the end, but we are loyal to the end. The second characteristic is growth. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The idea here is that friends bring out the best in one another. This is one of those, though, that cuts both ways because it all depends on the quality of the friends that you choose. A wise man once said that friendship makes good men better and bad men worse. That's because our moral character is shaped by those that we spend our time with. Now, on the minus side of this, it basically means this. Stupid rubs off. It might be superficial things, like a few bad habits, like profanity, but it can also be about deeper things like anger or greed. That's why St. Paul once said in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. And we know this. In fact, 
Your mother probably told you this in middle school. Your dad probably told you this as you went away to college. Be careful who you hang out with. But there's a positive way to put this as well, and that is hang with enough good people, and they will rub off on you as well. So Proverbs 13.20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. I can't tell you the number of times in my life when a good friend has helped me see how a thought, an attitude, or a behavior is headed in the wrong direction. It may sound extreme, but I don't think we can be good people without some other good people in our lives. Now, a few weeks, we're going to talk about how to be a good church member. That's the week when a lot of you won't be here. And so since you won't be, I'm going to give you one thing that I'll probably say that week. And that's that um, if we want to be the kind of people that God asks us to be, we need to be around the kind of people who support us, set an example for us, and challenge us to be um, what we ought to be. So church attendance isn't about getting gold stars and some kind of, uh, you know, heaven uh, reward. Instead, it's the best way to make certain that there are positive influences in our lives. That means making church attendance a priority. By the way, parents, if you want your kids to have positive influences in your lives, bring them as well. I'm not trying to pour on the guilt, but it's really hard to make good church friends for your kids if you're only here once or twice a month. So loyalty, growth, and the final characteristic is encouragement. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And when I talk about encouragement here, I'm talking about a certain kind of encouragement, and that is spiritual encouragement. From what I've said so far, you know that I think that friendships are important, and we need to make them a priority. But our greatest need is for what I would call spiritual friendships. This isn't two former fraternity brothers hanging out watching the old alma mater play football. Instead, it's the kind of friendship that helps us follow God. The kind of friends we can go to and be honest with about our struggles as well as our joys. People who encourage us and challenge us. Those who share how God's working in their lives and ask us what's going on in ours. These are people who will ask you, what's bringing you joy? What's stressing you out? How is it with your soul? And how can I pray for you? There's much more that we could say about all three of these characteristics, but let's move on now to talk about how it is that we can build great friendships. And again, I want to give three ideas. The first is regular connection. I was with somebody this week who told me he's been having breakfast every Friday morning with a group of guys since 1991. It's a long time. My wife has a group of high school friends, and they call themselves the Dessert Club, and they get together almost every month for dessert. And Kathy and I have another group of friends that we call ourselves the Supper Club. So we get together five or six times a year for dinner. We've done that since the first year we were married. So we're on 26 years and counting. So it could be a weekly breakfast, a monthly book club, an annual golf outing. The only way to maintain and grow these kinds of friendships is to get together regularly. A second piece of advice is shared experiences. Years ago, I read a book about dating that encouraged couples to do what the author called active activities. What he said was that far too many times people spend their time in passive entertainment, watching movies or TV, eating out, attending games. And he said, don't stop those kinds of things. That's just fine. But he said, add in times with meaningful shared activity. The benefit, he said, is that you lose yourself in the activity. Instead of spending time just focusing on one another, um, he said, you can learn more from someone by what you observe than what you say. Now, I know that was about dating, but I think the same principle applies to friendship. 
So go do something. Build something. Do something outdoors. Learn something new. Volunteer together. And include others, even those you don't know very well. These might be activities where you do a lot of talking, and then they might not. You really can't know someone well until you've sweated, grunted, tried, failed, and succeeded with them. So do something with one another, and you will find that you have a shared history that you can't get in any other way. So, regular connection, shared activities, and the third characteristic is time. And this is where you start thinking, okay, now here's where the guilt comes, because you're going to tell me to start spending a lot of time. My life is too full. I don't have time to spend more time trying to build into friendships. But that's actually not what I'm talking about when I mention time. The point I want to make is that healthy friendships take time to develop. You can't microwave them, and you have to do it in small steps. For example, healthy friendships include honesty and vulnerability, but you can't just waltz in and spill your guts. And if someone starts to do that with you, you might actually want to run the other way. But it's also not healthy if the relationship just stays on the surface. So my advice is take your time. Be vulnerable slowly. Share a small truth about yourself and see how the other person handles it. Do they treat it confidentially? Do they reciprocate and tell you something? Is what they share appropriate for the level of friendship that you have? It's a progressive process. It takes time, and it should. So regular connection, shared experiences, and time. Do these, and you will build strong friendships. But I don't want you to think that these friendships are always perfect. We're human. We mess up. We let each other down. Some friends will fail us. Pursuing friendship includes the possibility of pain. If you want to protect your heart, don't give it to anyone. But what you will give up is the benefit of deep friendship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, uh, he stood up courageously to Hitler during World War II and lost his life because of it. But he wrote a little book called Life Together. It's a book about the shared life that we have um, in the Christian church. He said it's the only place where you can really find this kind of love. The only play that we stay together, though, is through Jesus Christ. Because without Christ, he says, we quarrel and fight. But Christ brings us together as one so we can live in peace and love and learn to serve one another. Bonhoeffer said that what makes the church unique is that it is a community not based on affinity, but on common bond in Jesus Christ. So it's not just about natural affinity. It's an inclusive community, one that's open to all, a place where even those who don't fit anywhere else in society can find a home. And then he makes this convicting comment. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useful people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. At some point in all our lives, we have wanted to be a part of an in crowd. Just think back to high school. When you were not part of the cool crowd, the in crowd, the the kids that ruled the school. It's natural for us to want to be drawn to certain people with whom we share interests, but we can never make any group we're part of exclusive, especially in the church. Well, we started today talking about what makes us happy, and despite my reservations about the subject, it's interesting that the research confirms what the biblical writers have already talked about. That is, that our lives are enriched by the friends we have. When they're absent, we feel it. So today I want to leave you with a quote from one of the greatest of the 20th century's philosophers, Winnie the Pooh. 
A day without a friend is like a pot without a single drop of honey left inside. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this new series on uh, the different roles that we play in life, we pray about our friendships and pray, Father, that we would be people that are loyal, people that are there to encourage and challenge uh, one another. Pray, Father, that we would invest the effort and time that it takes to build these kinds of friendships in appropriate ways. And I pray we wouldn't be burdened by anything that I've said or anyone else would say on this subject, but that rather you would help us to find the time invest the effort and to find the support and encouragement and challenge in the friendships that we have. Father, if there are changes we need to make, someone who's not having a good influence in our lives and we need to create some boundaries, let us do that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.